What well, every blessing to you all, and welcome back to my open air pulpit. It's around one degree Celsius as we're standing here this morning. It's a very sunny, very crisp day, a very beautiful day, and I'm very happy to be back at my open air pulpit. I was last here around September time, so what's that, two months ago? And uh, since I was last here, much has happened in the world, and if I get a chance, I will come back and discuss what has been happening since I was last here. Just a couple of things to mention, if I may, before I get into the subject in hand, and say that if you want to receive our monthly newsletter, please send me your email address, and I will email it out to you uh, the last day of each month. Or Fadenat, if you click on the description box on YouTube, if you're watching this on YouTube, and you can read November's newsletter. Or Fadenat, go to our Twitter page or Facebook page, and you can read our newsletter at the end of each month. I'm also happy to say that we've been able to improve our live Sunday service. Uh, we've been able to improve the live link, the live stream, which allows people all over the world to listen in live at 11 a.m. UK time. So if you want to break bread with us in spirit, if you want to follow along with us in spirit, you're more than welcome to do so via our website, excatholicsofchrist.com, and just click on the live Sunday stream, 11 a.m. UK time. And again, if you want to receive our newsletter, just drop me your email address. Well, it's been a good year for Patrick and I, We've been very busy pounding the streets, speaking to people, pressing the flesh, as they say, contending for the faith, which was once delivered under the saints. And I guess the highlight thus far from 2016 would have to be our two trips to Speaker's Corner, which is in central London. And it was good to go on two occasions this year, June and October. The only downside with Speaker's Corner is that it only takes place on a Sunday afternoon, which for us is a very busy day. Sunday, of course, is the Lord's Day. And like I said a few moments ago, we have a live service every Sunday. So it's very difficult to have the service and then get down to London, which round trip is about 600 miles. And although I like to walk, <laughs> I, couldn't, I wouldn't be able to walk 600 miles. It'd be impossible. And even if we were to jump on a train, and go from Manchester to London and back, it would take a long time. On top of that, we have to edit our live Sunday service. So it isn't possible to get down as often as I would like. So it was great to go twice this year. During our time at Speaker's Corner from the October visit, the discussion about the Lord Jesus Christ came up. And it seems to me that Muslims need Jesus. Catholics need Jesus. Hindus need Jesus, not as their saviour, I'm sorry to say, but as a part of their system, meaning this, that if you were to take Jesus out of the equation, Islam would fall flat on its face. If you were to take Jesus out of Catholicism, Islam would fall flat on its face. And if you were to take Jesus out of Hinduism, uh, Hinduism would fall flat on its face. Because these religions need more than just their own gurus. They know that Jesus is a, very, is a very special person, a very unique person, and that's why they give him lip service. And yet, at the same time, they have no idea who he is or 
why he came to the earth to do what he did. He has been probably the most misrepresentative, mis misunderstood, misrepresented, uh, and smeared person, I think, that we've ever seen on the face of the earth. And yet he is the most beautiful person that has ever lived, the most remarkable person that ever lived, and the most incredible person that ever lived. To think that someone would taste death for me, to think someone would die for me, to think someone would be resurrected in order for me to go to heaven is remarkable. On top of that, to think someone would taste death for me, who had never tasted death a day in his life, and would become sin for me, is outstanding. It is profound. There are no words to really describe what that feels like. And therefore, it's a great privilege for myself and Patrick and others that take the Word of God very seriously to at least attempt to have dialogue with unsaved people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I made a decision before we went to Speaker's Corner in October that what I wasn't going to do uh, was barge in and pretty much lecture people or make fun of their prophets, their idols, their gods, or their beliefs. I, I felt it was more important to go in uh, peacefully, uh, full of meekness, and allow the Holy Ghost to do the rest. And I guess in time we will discover whether or not that was successful. There was a time and a place to be bombastic. There was a time and a place to uh, go in to such an environment, all guns blazing. But as far as I was concerned, that wasn't the way that we were going to go forth. We wanted to conduct ourselves with a level of dignity and allow the Word of God to really do the work. I'm also very conscious of the fact that we have an old nature as saved people, and sometimes that old nature can get a hold of you. It can dominate you. And if I get a chance, I will speak about that also today. In fact, I won't touch on that now, otherwise I'll lose my uh, concentration. But what I want to do is look at some verses which I was reading on the way back from uh, London in October and could have discussed this, I guess, during our morning Bible studies. But I thought I would hold it back until today. And what a great day to do this. In fact, let me just say this also, if I may, that this past Sunday, I was able to finish Revelation chapter 12. And this coming Sunday, Lord willing, I will start Revelation chapter 13. And the more I read that book, the more I think about that book, the more I think about the Lord, the more I pray to the Lord and worship the Lord and rejoice in the Lord, the more I realize that I'm nothing, I'm no one. I don't really understand the Word of God or Almighty God. And that's why I think it's fair to say that no matter how many times you read the Word of God, if you are honest with yourself, you never quite get it down. You may get the basics down, okay, fine, but to really drill deep into Scripture, I think is a lifetime of study, and that's why I offer myself as a student of Scripture. So keep me in prayer as I continue to work through Revelation, 
each Sunday morning. And incidentally, that uh, project, that uh, set of recordings is then produced for ETC Radio, End Times Coming Radio, which of course is our shortwave radio ministry. But I thought to myself during our trip in London and our turn back to Manchester about why people at least give the impression of being interested in our great God and as such want to discuss who we believe in, who we love and why we love. But more importantly, who exactly Jesus Christ is. And the main stumbling block seems to be that Jesus Christ, although a great man, and the Hindus would believe that, as would the Muslims, as would uh, most atheists, was not God. They can't comprehend that almighty God, if he wanted to, could leave heaven, come to earth, live amongst his subjects, his creation, his friends, how about that? Not just lording it over his uh, people, but living, dining, and dying amongst his friends. They can't comprehend it. They think it's impossible. And I like to say to such people, well, I guess then you must be more powerful than God. Because it says God had a son. It says that Jesus Christ is his only begotten son. And yet you tell me that he can't have a son. And yet you good Muslim, Muslim men are able to have children. And some of you good Muslim men have sons as well. So I guess by that you're telling me that you're more powerful than God. It seems you can have children, you can have sons, and yet God can't. But I know that the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Lord. It's spiritually uh, discerning to him. It's impossible for him before he is born again, before he has been regenerated, this goes right over his head. I understand that. I really do. And that's why I don't think it's helpful for those of us which are saved to just bulldoze our way into such an environment and lecture people and also chastise people for being unable to understand what we understand, what we take for granted. Because they're not born again. They are dead in their sins. They are walking corpses. They need to be regenerated. And there's hope for you. If you want to be regenerated, just turn to the Lord in faith. And I will further explain that. But from John chapter 10, let's start in verse 17, please. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. My Father loves me, my Father and I are one. Therefore doth my Father love me, Jesus speaking, because I lay down my life. Nobody forced him to lay down his life. Nobody took him by surprise that I might take it again. Now how about that? We've just seen the death of Fidel Castro. We've seen people lie in the streets in Cuba mourning him. And of course, you know that Cuba is run by the secret police. There is literally, on every street corner, a member of the secret police. They watch you very carefully, like they do in North Korea. At the same time, you've got that Stockholm syndrome, which means this, that those people have lived under the wicked suppression 
of an atheist dictator and in a sort of macabre way that we in the West don't quite understand, they have a sense of allegiance to him. So I'm not overly surprised to see people lying in the streets in Cuba, some crying, of course it could be crocodile tears, and yet the impression that we are given in the West is that a great man has just died, and yet what did that great man do for his people? As far as I can uh, see from press reports and books that have been written about him by those that knew him, he lived pretty comfortably. He had a pretty good life. He certainly didn't die for anyone. He died at a good old age of 90. 18. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. So it's like this. Before the creation of the world, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost had a meeting, and it was decided that once the earth had been created, once man had fallen, once sin had come into the world, one of the triunity, one of the members of the triune God, would have to redeem mankind. Somebody would have to pay the price for the sins of the world. You see, you can't pay it yourself. No matter how holy you think you are, no matter how upright you think you are, you can't pay for your own sins when it comes to the Lord just waving you into heaven. Now, what you can do, if you want to, if you think uh, it's wise to do so, is face the Lord at the great white throne judgment and tell him what a great man you were, what a great woman you were. And I'm sure Castro will be wanting to do that. And I'm sure many uh, well-known socialists and atheists will be wanting to do that. But remember this, as you stand in the presence of Almighty God, according to, uh, I think it's John 5, from memory, it's going to be Jesus Christ judging you. And he will say to you probably something along the lines of, but did you ever lie? Did you ever steal? Did you ever lust? Were you always thankful for the food that you ate or for the breath that you breathed? Is your blood like my blood? Are you sinless? Were you always perfect in word, thought and deed? And of course, you know, if you've got any sense that you're no good, that you fail each and every day. And that's why you were told in 1 John chapter 1 to confess your sins to the Lord. And that is addressed to save people. Never mind unsaved people, they're lost. They've got no hope. They're on their way down. And they're going to burn without Christ. So yes, if you want to take a chance at the great white throne judgment and stand in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and tell him what a great person you were, to then have him turn around and say, but did you live like I lived? Did you walk on the water? Did you feed thousands of people? Did you raise the dead? Did you give sight to the blind? Did you put a man's ear back on its head? Back on its once it had been cut off. Did you die for the sins of the world? What did you really do that benefited other people? And the answer will come back, absolutely nothing. And you will see yourself in an awful state. So, 
10, 17 and 18, I see the Son of God leaving heaven, coming down to earth, being Israel, dying for the sins of the world and having the power, the authority to raise himself from the dead. John chapter 2. And that's why, as a Bible believer, I'm quite happy to say that my Saviour is Almighty God. If he wasn't Almighty God, he couldn't raise himself from the dead. If he wasn't Almighty God, he'd be no different to you and I. His blood would be just like your blood, just like my blood. And that's why biblical Christianity is supreme to every other faith system in the world. Every other system teaches, in essence, that if you do this, or if you do that, or if you start doing this, or if you stop doing that, in other words, turn over a good leaf, that you might make it into glory. You might make it into heaven. You might uh, receive nirvana. You might get into paradise. Go to Matthew, Matthew 26. Now, I can understand that type of mentality. When I was a Catholic, I would uh, go to Mass, and I would serve Mass as an altar boy when I was in my teens, and I would certainly go to Midnight Mass, and I would go to uh, Easter Sunday, which would last for around three hours. It was a very long service, and the church would be packed. Midnight Mass would also be very well attended, and I would breeze in, maybe for an hour for Midnight Mass, three hours for Easter Sunday, and I felt I was doing something, because the flesh wants to do something. Man wants to do something. Some people like to exercise a lot. Some people like to do yoga a lot. Some people like to read a lot. Man is built to do something. So I can understand that type of mentality. But when it comes to Almighty God, when it comes to one's justification, when it comes to one's salvation, without the blood, you are completely lost. And I can't stress it enough. You see, it, it almost comes down to this, I guess, that either you pay for your own sins, which of course you can't do, or either you take responsibility for your own sins, which you certainly can do, which is going to result in you going off into the lake of fire to burn forever, or you take a pardon. You allow someone to do something for you. But people are very self-righteous. People don't like to take a helping hand. People like to try and achieve things themselves. And yet I put it to you this way, that if you were driving down the motorway and your tyre blew out, or if you had a child who was rushed to hospital, or if you found yourself in a a doctor's surgery or a dentist's surgery and someone said to you that you could take their appointments or they had a spare tyre for you or there was spare blood for your sick child. I think it's fair to say that most people, if they've got any sense of decency or any sense of normality, would say thank you very much and take the helping hand. And yet when it comes to salvation, people are very self-righteous. Catholics are very self-righteous. I'll go to Mass. I will pray to the Virgin Mary. I will do penance. I will do this. I will do that. And they completely bypass the blood of Christ. 
Muslims are the same. I'm going to do the five pillars of Islam. I'm going to fast. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to try and be a good Muslim. Hindus, Sikhs, every theist in the world <coughs> tries to make it to their God or their God's their own way. And if the truth be known, it doesn't work that way. But I'll come back maybe and we'll get a chance further to discuss that. Matthew 26, look at verse 36. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. Christ very much lived by example. Never mind, uh, do as I say, but not as I do. He would practice what he preached, and he preached what he practiced. And here, he really sets the, uh, sets the scene, sets the pace, or sets the bar, I should say. He sets the standard so high that it is impossible, that's right, it is impossible to match his standard. It's like following a great uh, music composer, or a great uh, mathematician, or a great uh, politician. You can't duplicate that. I mean, you try, for example, you try and duplicate someone like uh, Bernstein, a great musical composer, a great pianist, or you try and uh, get anywhere near Winston Churchill or Abraham Lincoln or Albert Einstein or Duke Ellington or anyone who was a cut above the rest. You try and get anywhere near that type of person and you'll fall flat on your face. And here Christ is about to go to the cross. He's about to do something for you. And had you told me about this man 14, 15 years ago from the Word of God, I'd like to think that I would have been interested enough to crack open a Bible and read more about him. I mean, I knew about him. Of course I did. I was raised in a Catholic church. I went to Catholic schools. But I didn't know him personally until I was born again. It's like this, you see. Let's say you are working outside Buckingham Palace. Let's say you are one of the many guards that guard the palace, that guard Her Majesty the Queen. Let's say you are a police officer or a soldier, and every day you see her drive in to the palace in her chauffeur-driven car, or drive out in her chauffeur-driven car, and occasionally she gives you a glance, but no more than that. You could say you know her, in the sense of being able to recognize her, but you don't know her personally. You've never had a conversation with her as such. And then one day someone comes out of the palace and says, would you like to come in and meet Her Majesty the Queen? And you think to yourself, wow, this is pretty remarkable. <laughs> I've been out here for 15 years. Every time she's driven past me, I've saluted her. I've stood to attention. But now she wants to meet me. And you think to yourself, why not? I spent 15 years, 20 years, 25 years guarding her in the palace. Yes, of course. And you go in, and she shakes your hand. You've gone from knowing of her to knowing her personally. That's a picture of the cross. Now, for me, for all of my life, I knew of the Lord, but I didn't know him personally until 14 years ago when he reached out and grabbed my hand. Not literally, of course, spiritually. And I grabbed his hand spiritually, and I was saved. You have to make that connection, you see. You've got to go from a head knowledge 
to having your heart circumcised. And yet even that goes over the heads of so many people. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane. It all went wrong in the original garden, and here it's going to be put right in another garden. And saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. Pray until you pray. And if your prayer doesn't get answered, start all over again. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. And someone said to me, well, if this is your God, why is he being afflicted in such a way? Why is God putting himself into such a vulnerable situation? And this goes over the heads of the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Muslims, and pretty much every group of people outside of Bible-believing Christians. He's about to become sin for the world. Every thought, every word, every deed, everything that went wrong back in the Garden of Eden is about to be put right on the cross. And that starts in Gethsemane. He starts to sweat blood, his precious blood. Son of man, son of God. 38. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. He was hungry, he was thirsty. He was tired, he was emotional. Human side. He walked on the water, he raised the dead. He gave sight to the blind, divine side. But you see, if you're not born again, and most people aren't, you can't understand what I'm talking about. You can hear what I'm saying, but you don't really understand what I'm talking about because your spirit is dead. You are unsaved. Hence why you need to be saved. But you won't get saved until you humble yourself. You won't get saved until you hear the gospel preached. And that's what we try to do at Speaker's Corner, preach the gospel. And here, the Lord says, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. I'm sure most of you, at least once in your life, have been really pulled down. You've been really drained. You feel like the whole world is against you. You've been depressed. You've been as flat as you've ever been. And some people, when they get really flat, unfortunately take their own lives, which you should never do. But my point is this, you've been down, you've been depressed. Um, I remember years ago speaking to an old friend of mine, long before I was saved, who suffered with awful depression. And he told me one day that his parents sent for the doctor. And the doctor arrived at his house and gave him some kind of an injection. I don't know what he gave him, but he was so depressed, he couldn't get out of bed. And this doctor gave him something which I think worked, gave him some kind of a lift. So that's a picture of an unsaved man being depressed, being worn down, uh, being at rock bottom. But here 
the sinless Son of Man, the eternal Son of God, is becoming very sorrowful. Not because he's about to be uh, put on a cross and crucified for the sins of the world, no. Because he's going to become sin. Now I don't quite understand that. I can comprehend Christ dying for my sins. I can comprehend Christ being resurrected from the dead for my sins. I can comprehend that if I believe on that, if I trust in that, I am saved. I can comprehend that. But what I, what I can't comprehend is Christ becoming sin for us. And some people say, well, what that means is, is that after he dies on the cross, his uh, spirit goes back to be with the Lord, but his soul goes into hell. And his soul is tortured in hell for three and a half days. And the devil has got a hold of him for three and a half days. And the devil is working him over for three and a half days. And after three and a half days, Christ becomes the first born again man. I don't believe that. In fact, that sounds like heresy to me. But some people hold to that. What I believe and what I'm able to comprehend is that Christ goes into the ground, is able to set captivity captive, is able to preach the gospel to enemies of the cross, unclean spirits, wicked men and women going back to creation. He's able to proclaim victory over them. I can understand that, but I don't quite understand how he becomes sin for us. One uh, well-known Bible teacher suggested that Christ's soul lost its shape when he died, that it became like a serpent's soul. And he got that from John chapter 3. I'm not sure about that either. But what I do know from the text here is 38, how Christ is becoming very sorrowful because he knows there's no other way to redeem mankind and he knows that what he is about to do will have eternal consequences for mankind. I mean, just think about this for one moment, if you will. It's 2016. I've been saved 14 years. Next year will be 15 years. It is beyond comprehension to me that somebody who died 2,000 years ago could cover my sin by his own precious blood, which has long been washed away. And yet that's exactly what happened and continues to happen. And that's why you need to be like a child to some extent when it comes to comprehending this great message. Let's keep reading on. Look at verse 39, please. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. This also got put to me at Speaker's Corner by at least one Islamic gentleman asking me to explain why my God was reacting in such a way. He can't comprehend that it costs something to redeem people. And I've seen many documentaries over the years, and I've read many accounts of parents literally dying in the place of their children. And here, the everlasting father, Isaiah, chapter 9, is about to do just that. Oh, my father, if it, be, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, a bitter cup. 
nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. There's no other way, listen, there's no other way for mankind to be redeemed, according to the word of God. Either you pay for your own sins, which is what most people are going to do, or you take the payment that was made on your behalf. It's either the cross or it's you. You're either in Abel or you're in Cain. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You're either saved or you're unsaved. It's as simple as that. And here, the Lord very much in submission to his Father, a great lesson for us to learn, submits himself to his Father's will. 40. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Infallible Peter, the first Pope of Rome, <laughs> or so we are told. And yet here Peter fails. Now, to be fair to the apostles, they loved the Lord. But you see, they couldn't quite keep up with him. It's like people who say, well, I'm going to copy the Lord. I'm going to follow in the footsteps of the Lord. I'm going to live like the Lord. I'm going to try and be like he was. Meaning this, that they're going to trust in their works to get them to glory. It won't work. No one is like Christ. That's the whole purpose of Christ coming to the earth, to die in our place. Go back to my analogy again. You may say to yourself, well, I like swimming. I like tennis. I like soccer. Okay, pick out the best uh, swimmer that's ever lived. Pick out the, great, uh, the greatest Olympian that ever swam, or the greatest uh, soccer player that dominated a football pitch, or the greatest tennis player that uh, completely uh, controlled tennis courts around the world. You try and copy that person. I mean, right down to the letter. You try and be like Sampras, for example, or Murray, or Phelps. You can't do it, can you? No matter how hard you try, you can't get anywhere near that person. Because they are different to you. And that's just from a secular perspective. Some people say, well, I'm going to try and live like the Lord. I'm going to try and be a good Christian. In fact, Gandhi tried to be a good Christian, so-called. And he was very good at uh, lecturing Christians and making the case that he'd never met a Christian. And most of India would follow him. Most of India thought very highly of him. And yet, if the truth be known, he was simply a humanist. He was simply trying to do his own thing. He uh, set his own rules up. He wanted people to follow him. He wanted people to believe in him. And that's why when you break it down, that's why if you really take the time to examine every holy person, whether man or woman, Western or Eastern, they all fail. They all have their shortcomings. But one of Gandhi's shortcomings uh, would be that he would sleep naked with young children, young female children. Can you imagine Christ doing that? Of course you can't. And most of India, up until around 1948, pretty much revered the man, pretty much worshipped him. And yet, he's no different to you. He's no different to me. His blood is like your blood. His blood is like my blood. That's why I made the case back in September 
when it comes to listening to so-called religious people predicting future events like the crash of the US dollar or the crash of the pound or who's going to win the US election or is Christ going to come back on the 29th of December 2016 they don't know any more than you do and yet people continue to tune in every week to listen to their favorite prophet their favorite guru their favorite evangelist to get a tip to get uh, further light from the Almighty and of course such are Gnostics but here Peter James and John are worn down it's been a long hard road for them they've been up for hours with the Lord and their shortcomings are going to be very evident 41 watch and pray that you enter not into temptation the spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak when you get saved you have two natures you receive Christ's new nature you receive the new birth which according to first John chapter 3 cannot sin and yet at the same time you still have your body your flesh is still your flesh your blood is still your blood you still live in a cursed world that's why you will never be perfect you can try to be perfect and you should certainly fight sin you should certainly fight temptation you should endeavor to be holy but when it comes to perfection only Christ would be perfect 24 7 so yes the spirit indeed is willing concerning those which are saved but the flesh is weak oh wretched man that I am that what I want to do I don't do and what I don't want to do that I end up doing Romans chapter 7 if we say we haven't sinned we make him a liar but if we confess our sins he is just and faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness man is very complex and if you don't know that you haven't lived never mind these sins of omission how about the sins of commission or how about the sins of omission not just the sins of commission meaning this that people say well I no longer do this and that's true wonderful but you're still doing that aren't you for example you may have conquered the big sins in your life it's possible Paul would say I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me or which strengthens me to be correct and yet there are times when you should do something and you don't do something there are times when you oversleep there are times when you undersleep there are times when you overeat there are times when you undereat there are times when you should be talking to neighbors acquaintances about the Lord and you don't there are times when you should be more lenient with your children and you're not or more strict with your children and you're not man is very complex and that's why I continue to make the case that you are saved by grace and you are kept saved by grace for by grace are you saved and that not of yourself it is the gift of God not of works lest any man should boast that's a great scripture for by grace are you saved by faith 
and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Not of works. Not of works. Lest any man should boast. Watch and pray, 41, that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, absolutely, but the flesh is weak. Two natures in the believer. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. This is called substitutionary atonement. This is called love. Never mind Romeo and Juliet. This is a real deal. To think someone would leave heaven, come to earth, live amongst sinful men and women, would allow Mary and Joseph to raise the Son of God. Sinful people, good people, but sinful people, would raise the Son of God, would take care of the Son of God, would witness his first steps, would take him to the temple, would prepare him for his bar mitzvah, to think that Almighty God would allow himself to be so vulnerable is just remarkable. But here, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. You've got this agony. You've got the Son of Man, Son of God. You've got Christ late at night in the Garden of Gethsemane, about to taste death for every man, about to become sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now think about that for one moment, if you will. You've got Christ, the sinless, eternal Son of God. Take away the death for one moment. Take away his crucifixion for one moment. Take away his resurrection for one moment. Based on what he said, based on what he did, like miracles, like living amongst ordinary people, not being a hypocrite, unlike Gandhi, not exploiting children, unlike Muhammad. Based on what he did alone, and what he did, still sets him apart from everyone else. It's very hard to fault Christ. Very, very hard. Even, even atheists struggle to find fault in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can find faults in Castro. You can find fault in Trump. You can find fault in yourself. You can find fault in me. But if you really scrutinize the Lord Jesus Christ, it's very, very difficult to find fault in his actions, in how he lived and died. In fact, some guy came up to me in Manchester last week, elderly chap, and he said to me, Jesus was a beggar. And I said to him, what do you mean by that? He said, well, Jesus didn't have a job. He was a beggar. And I thought to myself, of all the things to accuse Jesus of being a beggar, <laughs> it's somewhat of a joke. And I said to him, well, first of all, Jesus was an itinerant preacher. And as an itinerant preacher, as a Jewish rabbi, he was entitled to be supported with gifts. On top of that, according to the Word of God, he is the Son of God. He is the, he is the Word of God, the Son of God. He is the eternal God. So if he comes to earth, and he did, if he 
travelled Israel, and he did, if he preached the gospel, and he did, are we not meant to give him something in return? Like a gift or two. If we don't give him a gift or two, then we are the beggars. We are the thieves. Because we are robbing him of what he is entitled to receive. Like I say, as a travelling preacher, an evangelist, if you will, he is entitled to be supported with gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So when someone says to me, Jesus was a beggar because he didn't have a job, is just a joke, if not uh, plain right uh, insulting. And I took this old gentleman to task in a gentle way, and I said to him, but uh, he is greatly beloved. He is our saviour. And he said to me, well, I love Jesus. And I thought to myself, if you love him, why are you calling him a beggar? You wouldn't go over to a group of Muslims, or Freemasons, or Hindus or Sikhs, and call their prophets a beggar. And you'll come over to me and call my saviour a beggar, because he didn't have a job. Yes, he had a job. He was a carpenter, up until the Lord called him into the ministry. And for three and a half years, he crisscrossed Israel and was entitled again, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, to be supported with gifts. That's what an evangelist, that's what someone who goes out and works the Lord is entitled to uh, receive. Not a one-man pastor, that's not found in scripture, but an evangelist, a preacher, is certainly entitled to be supported financially. And I corrected this gentleman uh, before he left me. Getting very cold now. Very cold, so I'm going to push on. Uh, 43, please. And he came and found them again, for their eyes were heavy. And he came and found them again. This will be the apostles. For their eyes were heavy. If you've ever been really up against it, you know that you just want to go to sleep. You want to close your eyes and go to sleep. So let's not be too hard on the apostles and their inability to stay up with the Lord, to truly live it, like people say. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. He knew what was going to happen. He knew how it was going to play out. He knew the, uh, right down to the precise moment that he was going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. And yet he doesn't want renege on the deal. He doesn't want to go back on his word. 46. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he that is at hand doth betray me. He is at hand that doth betray me. He is about to come and detain me. Concerning Judas, and according to Luke 22, concerning Satan as well. Satan would, en would enter several times into Judas Iscariot. And Judas, according, according to uh, John chapter 6, was a devil, an unclean spirit. A very interesting character to try and assess so these verses from Matthew 26, 36 to 46 offer to me 
a sinless man, very much in submission to his father, about to taste death for every man, every woman, and every child. Doesn't shun it, doesn't run from it, is not a coward, doesn't uh, have a change of heart, knows exactly what is happening, and yet goes through the motions, or allows his apostles to see what is occurring, because he wants them to later write it down in their epistles, in their gospels. On top of that, he wants them to see what it's like to truly pray, to truly grapple with uh, situations that almost seem impossible. Go to Hebrews chapter 5, please. It's a great blessing to be back at the open-air pulpits. Uh, although I do appreciate the walking, talking pulpit, and I've done around 20 sermons thus far, taking me to around probably 15 hours, this is still the preferred place for me to uh, be at, because I can't read the Word of God as I walk. I can't really get into Scripture as I pound the streets. So the open-air pulpit remains a great blessing to me. Hebrews 5, look at verse 7, please. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him, that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. They were a son, yet learned the obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God, and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Though you were a son, son of man, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. Not my free will, not my uh, decision, but your free will, your decision. Not my way, but your way. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, believe on him, receive him. Eternal salvation. It's a one-off deal. All this talk about losing your salvation. How can you lose it? It's not yours to lose. It's like this. Your parents decided to bring you into the world. That wasn't discussed with you. Your parents decided to bring you into this world. And once you receive the Saviour, it's his good pleasure to take you to heaven. You can't stop him taking you to heaven. Once you are physically born, you can't be unborn. Once you are spiritually born again, you can't be unborn again. Called a God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek who in the days of his flesh, verse 7, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. We just read about it. Matthew 26. And was heard in that he feared. They were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. He set the pace. It says how Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. You try and get anywhere near what he did, and you will fail. And being made perfect, he became the author 
of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. No works involved. Just believe on him. Receive him. Humble yourself. Court of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. An interesting character found, I think, three times in the word of God. Go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. I know why people want to be like Jesus. I understand that. And you can do a lot worse, of course. But don't try and be like Jesus when it comes to somehow trying to please him. It's like this. Let's say you are a driver, okay? And you drive every single day of the week. And you keep the speed limits. And let's say one day you go to your local police station or your local uh, town hall. And you queue up and you go to see the officer on the desk, the clerk, the clerk, 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 on the desk. And you say to that person, by the way, I have kept the uh, speed limits this week. I'm uh, very proud of myself. <laughs> they won't commend you for that. They won't congratulate you for that. They will say that you are supposed to keep the speed limits. Uh, and to think that they will shake your hand or will give you a star or a pat on the back is somewhat of a joke. So to think that people are going to be arriving in heaven and somehow uh, bragging to the Lord about doing this or doing that, to have him then turn around and congratulate such people is again a joke. He won't congratulate you. He will condemn you. Because what you are trying to do is not only impress him, but you're trying to own favor with him. You're trying to offer yourself as being on par with him. Again, go into your local police station or your local town hall and you tell them. Tell them that you keep the speed limits and you never go over or under. You're bang on every time you go out for a drive. They will laugh in your face. They don't care if you keep the speed limit. They will say that you are supposed to keep the speed limit. <laughs> and they will ask you to leave the building. John 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. I came for this very purpose. People say Jesus was a good man, but he got out of his depth. In fact, every biblical film I've ever watched seems to portray Jesus Christ in such a light. I think the worst film that did this uh, was The Greatest Story Ever Told, made by George Stevens. 1961 and I don't know why these people do this well, of course I do know because they're not saved but these people these directors consult so-called experts on the scripture so-called theologians and they have a handful of script writers who spend a long time planning for the movie and every single film King of Kings uh, Ben-Hur to some extent The Greatest Story Ever Told especially portray Jesus as a good man, but either out of his depth or naive or ignorant or unable to uh, know what was going on. He was somehow taken by surprise. I, I can't really understand why people make this 
terrible blunder. And that's why it's not always a good thing to watch certain movies about the Lord Jesus Christ. Or if you make a movie about him, at least consult saved people who believe in the word of God. 28, Father, glorify thy name. Then came the voice from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. This is my beloved Son. Hear ye him. And yet people say, but God can't have a son. People say, but Jesus never said he was God. You read over in uh, uh, John 8, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. You read over in John 18, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. Uh, Matthew, excuse me, uh, John 13, you call me Master and Lord, and so I am. John 20, Thomas said to the Lord, my Lord and my God. Why do you take up stones to throw at me? John chapter 10, because thou being a man, makest thyself to be God. Many times, many times, Jesus declared his deity. I am that I am. Exodus chapter 3. And they all fell backwards. John 18. Father, glorify thy name. Then came a voice from heaven saying, I both glorified it and will glorify it again. Turn to chapter 18. But you see, it's like I say, until you are born again, this message, A, isn't for you, B, goes right over your heads, and C ends up becoming foolish. To the Jews, it is a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, it is foolishness. And yet to us which are saved, it is a power of God. It is great news indeed. Uh, John chapter 18. Uh, let's think now, John 18. Every so often I have to refer to the notes that I have made specifically as to what the verses will be. John 18, John 18, uh, verse 10. John 18, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, let me ask you this question. To those of you which believe that the Jewish apostolic sign gifts are still for today. Number one, how often are you out and about in your local towns and communities doing on-the-spot healings? We have a group in our town that every so often go onto the streets and they have a placard up which says healing. And I've watched this crowd over the years. And in the UK, we have what's called the Trade Description Act, which means this, that if you offer a service and you don't deliver on it, you can be prosecuted. And I've watched this crowd over the years. They don't... Uh, go on the streets very often. They are, of course, charismatics. And I thought to myself this, wouldn't it be interesting if I 
was a blind man, for example, or I'd lost my ear, like this chap here from verse 10, or I was a cripple. Wouldn't it be interesting if I was to go over to this group of charismatics and ask them to help me out? And as I arrive sick, I leave sick. To then turn around and try and have that crowd prosecuted. We've had two papal trips to the UK over the last 30 years. We had the first papal trip concerning Pope John Paul II back in the early 1980s, and we had uh, Pope Benedict XVI, who came here in uh, 2010. And we covered the latter of the two visits. On both occasions, that individual, the so-called Holy Father, who claims to be a successor to the Apostles, came into contact with sick people. They came sick and they left sick. John Paul II had many masses back in the early 1980s. Thousands came sick. Thousands left sick. Imagine trying to have those two guys prosecuted. You see, they offered a service. They offered to heal people. And yet those people came sick and they left sick. This church in my town are offering a service. They are offering to heal those that come to be healed. And it would be just of interest to me. I wouldn't do this, of course, but if I wasn't a saved man and I was wanting to be somewhat mischievous, it'd be very interesting to see how that would play out in a court of law. 11. Then said so Jesus unto Peter, put up, thy put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father had given me, shall I not drink it? Peter, put away your sword. Now Peter was a good man, but Peter was also a man with two natures. And here, his old nature has got the better of him. Put up thy sword into the sheath. Put your gun into its place of safety into its uh, holder. The cup which my father hath given me, the purpose of me coming to die for the sins of the world. Shall I not drink it? Shall I not go to the cross? Shall I not taste of death for every man? Don't try and stop me from doing what I'm about to do. You see, Christ was on a mission Christ as a Messiah was on a mission. Christ as a Messiah was on a very strict timetable, a divine timetable. You couldn't force his hand. You couldn't speed up his soon-to-be death. I have power to lay my life down, and I have power to take it up again. The Father and I are one. You call me Master and Lord, and so I am. In fact, go to... Uh, Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, it's getting somewhat warmer and yet the wind is picking up slightly so with the wind chill it's still somewhat of a battle but you know me if I start something I always try to uh, conclude. Philippians 2, look at verse 6 please, who being in the form of God Thought it not robbery to be equal with God, 
but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross who being in the form of God Emmanuel he that has seen the Father has seen me He that has seen the Father has seen me. He that has seen the Son has seen the Father. Christ would be the express image of the invisible God. If you were to see Christ in the flesh, you were to see the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. It's quite a thought, isn't it? Took upon him the form of a servant. Matthew 26, Hebrews chapter 5 and was made in the likeness of men, virgin birth, and being found in fashion as a man, the God-man, God manifest in the flesh. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Go back to John. So, I will say this and try and uh, pull these uh, verses all together. John chapter 12, I will say this then. What you've read today, and I appreciate you reading along with me from the open air pulpit, is a very unique man doing something that you can't do yourself. And if you take the time to compare him to other so-called holy people, you will discover very quickly that he is very much a cut above the rest. You have the right, of course, to either receive it or reject it, but if you reject it, if you pass it up, you will pay the consequences when you die. John chapter 12, look at verse, let's see now. Uh, Thirty-four. The people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou? The Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is the Son of Man? Like the Muslims at Speaker's Corner, like most people that I speak to, they have no understanding, they have no comprehension as to who the Son of Man is. The Jews had no idea who the Lord Jesus Christ was because for the most they were disinterested in him. They had their tradition. They had their religion. And what we saw at Speaker's Corner, I guess, would be the Muslims replacing the Jews, the inquisitive Jews that clashed time after time with the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. And we, those of us in the UK that are born again, are the 21st century equivalent to the early church. The Muslims replace the Jews, and we replace the small remnants of Jewish believers in the first century. Who is this Son of Man? Who is this Jesus? Whom do men say that I am? 35. Then Jesus said unto them, Yet little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While he have light, 
Believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. One of the worst things that God can ever do is hide himself from a sinner. And that's why it's so important to those of us which have teaching ministries to not go over the same old ground with the same old people. On top of that, you were told many times back in the Old Testament, like Jeremiah, for example, not to pray for certain people. It's an awful thought, isn't it? 37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Why? That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah, when he saw his glory and spake of him. They couldn't believe on him. They couldn't receive him because they were under a curse, the curse of Jesus. Jesus put a curse on unbelieving Israel. Isaiah speaks about it. Jeremiah speaks about it. Ezekiel speaks about it. They couldn't receive his message. They didn't want to receive his message. They would commit the unpardonable sin, which incidentally is impossible for anyone today to do, but it wasn't for the first century group of unbelieving Israels. But though he had done so many miracles before them, 37, yet they believed not on him. We'll have no man from Galilee. We'll have no illegitimate man reign over us. We have one king, one Lord, Caesar. We have one Lord, one God, the Pope. We shan't have this man to reign over us, this son of a carpenter, you see. Their hearts are dead. Satan has blinded their minds. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. You are dead in your sins before you are saved. You are an enemy of God before you are saved. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? When he came the first time, most of Israel didn't believe on him, didn't receive him. When he comes a second time, most of Israel will not believe on him, will not receive him. You've got the 144,000, you've got the two witnesses. And I've just spent the last two months going through the first 12 chapters of Revelation. And join me again, please, coming, this coming Sunday for chapter 13. Most of the people that get saved in the tribulation are going to be Gentiles not Jews. Therefore they could not believe, 39, because that Isaiah said again, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts and be converted and I should heal them. And I think this, and I will close. Muslims seem to be very much in the same category as unbelieving Israel. 
Catholics think they're going to get to heaven by the good works, so they are going to be da uh, damned in a different sort of way. Atheists are atheists, Darwinists are Darwinists, humanists are humanists, they will be damned in a different sort of way. But for the Jews in the first century that didn't receive the Lord, happened because they were under a curse. And that curse, of course, remains up until this present. And you are told from the book of Romans to pray for Israel. You are told not to be anti-Semitic. You are told not to be spiteful. You are told to be loving because the Jews are beloved for their father's sakes. On top of that, the Muslims are also, in a sense, beloved by Almighty God due to coming from Abraham. It's not the type of love which will save them, of course. Like the Jews, they need to be born again. But for those of us which are born again, we have to demonstrate the love of Christ. And we have to do what we do to the power of the Holy Ghost. So I think you've got enough and have heard enough from me, from a very cold but uh, beautiful, crisp December morning open-air pulpit, and uh, praise the Lord indeed. And uh, if you go into the streets, if you press the flesh, if you are wanting to reach people for the Lord, uh, just be mindful as to uh, what people are like, how they think and operate, and also be aware that for some people, this curse, John chapter 12, could still very much be in play and therefore it's worth praying for those people before you take to the streets otherwise you will find yourself going round and round and round the houses and uh, your time is precious if you're born again your time is precious so i think i've said enough and uh, thank you as always for uh, watching our videos for listening to the uh, walking talking pulpits and for joining us every sunday morning for our live uh, stream our live service and I will wish you every blessing every happiness and joy in Jesus name amen and amen